Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. After a few relatively quiet weeks, there was something of a blizzard of announcements from investment trust companies this week, with many big and well-known trusts reporting annual or interim results, and some interesting corporate and manager news as well. This week, I'm joined to discuss all this by Simon Bylard, manager of the Smithson Investment Trust, ticker SSON, the popular global smaller companies fund backed by Terry Smith's Fundsmith business, which this week produced some positive half-yearly figures, a 12% gain for the latest period. And by Ewan Lovett-Turner, Head of Investment Trust Research at Numis Securities, who cast his eye over some of the more important trends that are emerging from the cluster of latest updates. In the markets, there was a minor tremor in the bond markets when Fitch, one of the leading credit agencies, downgraded US government debt, albeit by a single notch. That and some mixed jobs data helped to send longer-dated bond yields higher over the week. The yields on 10-year and 30-year treasuries are now at their highest level this year. There's no question that the US government is going to default anytime soon, of course. The credit rating is still just uh, one peg below the strongest one there is, but it was seen as something of a warning shot about the budgetary challenges that face the US government looking ahead, with official projections that as a result of the explosion in the amount of government debt that's been issued in the last three years, the US fiscal deficit could rise to as much as 6% of GDP over the next two decades. That's double the level once regarded as tolerable. In the UK, the headline news was the decision by the Bank of England to raise interest rates again, as expected, by 0.25% to their highest level in 15 years. While that's come as a shock to many borrowers, the reality is that it's the long and extended period of near zero interest rates following the global financial crisis, which is the historical anomaly. Gilts mostly fell in price, so yields rose with every single government bond issue once again now offering a gross redemption yield of more than 4.1%. This is still no higher, to put it in perspective, than the level at which gilts traded in the decades leading up to the global financial crisis. Index-linked gilts also saw their yields edge higher, and the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England warned that, I quote, some key indicators, notably wage growth, suggest that some of the risks from more persistent inflationary pressures may have begun to crystallise. That's a sort of coded warning that we may be seeing a bit of a price-wage spiral going on. But there are some indications that mortgage rates may have peaked for now. In the equity markets, it was the first poor week for a while. The FTSE 100 and All Show Index were both down around 1.5% on the week, although the 250 Mid-Cap Index was down a little less. US equity markets were down by more, with the S&P 500 off around 2.5% and NASDAQ nearly 3% and the Japanese and leading European indices were also down. The Investment Trust Index, which tracks around 180 of the trusts in the All Share Index, uh, that number may come down if the current wave of consolidation continues, mind you, that was off 1.3%, and the average discount widened a tad, heading back towards the 16% level. Looking at the winners and losers, it was notable that some of the early-stage growth trusts were well to the fore, the likes of Seraphim Space, 
Digital 9, Shihali and, and Hydrogen 1 all registering decent gains, while commodity plays, whether renewable energy or gold mining specialists, headed the list of decliners, while higher yields dragged down the likes of hypnosis songs as well. Overall, losers on the week outnumbered gainers by about 3 to 1. In corporate news, there were updates from two struggling trusts with crises on their hands, it's fair to say, Home REIT, ticker H-O-M-E, and Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, ticker T-L-E-I. We've talked about both of those before on the podcast, but there was more developments this week. The former, Home REIT, uh, whose shares remain suspended and have little chance of returning to the market anytime this year, announced that the new management team has sold 40 of its properties, around 1.5% of its uh, total portfolio, but only at a price equivalent to 39% of their cost. If that write-down is typical of the rest of the properties that the uh, trust has, it only underlines the scale of the losses on which it may be sitting. Two of its tenants have said that they are going into creditors' voluntary liquidation, which will at least allow the manager some greater flexibility as it tries to get to grips with clearing up the portfolio and moving towards a new modified strategy. The new manager there is AEW, the large European property company, which also manages the AEW UK Investment Trust. At Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, whose shares have also been suspended since April, as we discuss later in an unusual development, the board is recommending shareholders not to vote in favour of the imminent discontinuation vote proposed by its own management company, which in turn, the management company this week described the board's decision to resist the discontinuation vote as, quotes, fundamentally detrimental to shareholder value and accused the directors of failing to act in the best interests of shareholders. Some may consider that a little rich given the failure of two of the big renewable construction projects in Asia for which Thomas Lloyd raised money and launched just less than two years ago and they failed to get off the ground. The Foreign Office, unusually, for an investment trust has an 18% shareholding here and will be one of those losing money as the trust moves towards what will eventually, it seems inevitable, be a messy end. News of a more positive nature came from International Biotechnology Trust, ticker IBT, where the board said that following a beauty contest, it has chosen Schroders to be the new fund manager. As expected, however, the current portfolio managers, Elsa Craig and Marek Pozhipsinski, who were on the podcast not that long ago, will be moving across to do the same job at the Trust's new home. Schroders, which recently also bought the fund management company, which looks after Greencoat UK Wind and Greencoat Renewables, says it has no plans to change the mandate. The unquoted allocation of the portfolio will remain at 15%, and will also cover the costs of the transaction. Another well-regarded fund manager who's moving house, so to speak, is Alex Illingworth, former co-manager of the Midwind Investment Trust, who resigned from Artemis earlier this year and is joining Harwood Capital Management to launch a new global equity business. Harwood Capital, run by Christopher Mills, manages a number of investment trusts, but it's not clear yet whether the new global equity offering will take the form of an open-ended fund or an investment trust. Meanwhile, Edison Property Investment Company, ticker EPIC, which said earlier this year that it was looking for a partner following a strategic review, said that it was in advanced discussions with a third-party buyer regarding the possible sale of the fund's entire property portfolio, although other options also remain on the table, it said. The shares here perked up quite sharply as the announcement raises hopes that there will be a full cash exit for current shareholders who don't want to uh, continue their investment elsewhere. The shares still traded a discount, though, of around 15% to the March 31st 
NAV. Axiom European Financial Debt, ticker AXI, another specialist trust which its board has decided is too small to be viable, said that it will be wound up, the board having concluded that it was too small to generate its full potential for frustrated shareholders. This uh, investment company, which has an £86 million portfolio of high-yielding junior debt issued by banks and insurers, a strategy that uh, it hoped would be popular following the global financial crisis, published a circular detailing plans to liquidate and give back shareholders their money, with the option to roll over into a similar open-ended fund run by the same group. Following the completion of a recent funding round, Shehalian C shares, ticker MNTC, are now over 85% deployed and accordingly will convert into ordinary Shehalian shares shortly. The conversion calculation date is the 31st of August and the shares are expected to be admitted for trading on the 11th of September. The conversion will take place on an NAV for NAV basis. There's no time, unfortunately, to cover all the results announcements that came out this week. Uh, there's a lot, but you can, as always, find a full list of the irrelevant announcements on the Moneymakers website, together with links to the RNS announcements and our regular summaries of the biggest price, NAV, and discount movements over the week and year to date. Uh, this week, I've added the first of what I hope will be a new series of features on offer to subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, our subscription offering. The first is a reader's questions item, and as its name suggests, involves me giving an answer each week to a topical question submitted by a subscriber. There's no trust profile this week, as my colleague Stuart Watson is away on holiday, but there are three more scheduled for the next few weeks, starting with BlackRock Frontiers next week. My recent video review of the Defensive Trusts, disappointing performers this year, it has to be said, is also now available, and I will be posting a second sector video review shortly. The list of those issuing and results, which I mentioned briefly, was headed by Pantheon International, ticker PIN, the 1.4 billion private equity trust, which reported an NAV total return of 2.4% over its latest 12-month period, slightly ahead of the FTSE All Share Index. With the shares sitting on a persistent 40% discount, the most important takeaway here is probably that the board has decided to allocate up to £200 million for share buybacks in its current financial year a significant step up from what it has done in this respect so far. The chairman said in his statement that he, and I quote, believes that the listed private equity sector has not kept up with the changing needs of its shareholders, and that there's a real opportunity now to do more to put shareholders' interests first. Well, nothing like a bit of derating to concentrate minds, I suppose you could say. Uh, this could have a powerful impact on NAV if the whole £200 million is spent at the current price of 270p, analysts estimate it could add nearly 7% to NAV. And the shares uh, seem to like the announcement. They were up 4% this week. Also reporting positive annual results were Aberforth Split Level Income Trust, whose uh, ordinary shares had a total return of 12.2% ahead of its smaller company's benchmark. Rights and Issue Trust also reported a positive NAV total return of 3.5%, again marginally ahead of the All Share Index. This trust, which uh, was formerly self-managed, but now has uh, moved to Jupiter to look after following the retirement of its long-serving manager, Simon Knott, has seen a significant restructuring of its portfolio since the new manager, Dan Nichols, took over in the autumn last year. It's a small concentrated portfolio with only 21 stocks in it. Not such good reading came from Henderson Smaller Companies, ticker HSL, one of many UK smaller company investment trusts. But one of the bigger ones, a £558 million market capitalization, 
Its NAV total return in its latest annual period was minus 13.8%, which was well behind the 6.5% decline in its uh, smaller company's benchmark. This trust, though, is one that does not believe that repurchasing shares is a worthwhile use of shareholders' money. CT Managed Global Portfolio, managed by Peter Hewitt, well known to this podcast, also reported its latest annual results. And as we discussed when we spoke to him recently, they also have lagged their benchmark index. The NAV total return of the growth shares was uh, minus 5.8%, again, slightly worse than its index comparator while the income shares had a total return of minus 7.4% against the same benchmark. Premier Might and Global Renewables, ticker PMGR, reported a NAV total return of minus 10.4, which was ahead of its benchmark, the S&P Global Clean Energy Index, but nonetheless not a particularly happy outcome. And Migo Opportunities, managed by Nick Greenwood, another regular contributor to the podcast, also reported its latest annual results for the year ended the 30th of April with an NAV total return minus 9.3% in sterling terms. The derating it was seen in investment trusts obviously has had an impact here. But uh, Nick Greenwood says that in his experience, which dates back uh, more than 20 years, this kind of big derating is often the precursor to a significant surge in the performance of the trust. Well, we'll hope that's the case for him. Incidentally, as we said last week, the management of this trust is moving across to AVI, Asset Value Investors, and uh, it's widely expected that Nick Greenwood will be moving there as well to join his former co-manager, Charlotte Cuthbertson, to look after the trust at his new home. And results too, finally, from Invesco Select, which is an interesting vehicle that has four different share classes, uh, which shareholders can switch between. Uh, Its latest result showed a mixed range of outcomes with the UK equity income portfolio performing well, but its global share class underperforming. And turning to the interims, I can do really no more than actually list some of the bigger names that are reported this week. And as I say, you can find details if you are a subscriber to the Moneymaker Circle. But they included Foreign and Colonial, the multi-asset trust with a market capitalization of well in excess of $4 billion. That reported an NAV total return behind its benchmark, but positive at 4.7%. We also heard results from RIT, NAV total return minus 0.2%. Tritax Big Box, whose uh, total return was positive 3.5%. Smithson, as I mentioned, NAV total return 11.7% against uh, its uh, 1.9% benchmark. Fidelity European, another good result here for NAV total return, 11.1%, slightly ahead of its benchmark, the European equity markets having performed well this year. Impacts Environmental Markets, NAV total return 3.5%. That was behind the two benchmarks it tracks. And Alliance Technology, NAV total return of 29.7%. Impressive in one sense, but uh, behind its technology index gain of 33%. There were also interim results from Scottish and American Investment Trust, positive NAV total return of 7.8% in line with its benchmark. European Assets, European Smaller Companies Trust, NAV total return of 5.2% ahead of benchmark. Fidelity Japan, NAV 5.3% in sterling, just behind its benchmark. Mobius Investment Trust, the Emerging Markets Trust, which is coming up to its fifth anniversary an NAV total return of minus 4%, and BlackRock Energy and Resources Income, 
NAV total return minus 4%. So a lot of results and, as usual, rather a mixed bag. So it was a pleasure, as I mentioned earlier, to uh, catch up this week with Simon Barnard, the manager of the Smithson Investment Trust, a very large vehicle that has a market cap of uh, well over $2 billion and uh, sits in the global smaller companies sector. Simon, last year was pretty tough in terms of share price performance and NEV performance last year. But this year, we've seen interest rates continue to rise, but there has been some recovery in the performance of the trust. Uh, What's your overall take on what's happened in the last seven months and uh, where we are at the moment? Hi, Jonathan. Yes, I think a few things have happened. First of all, although you say that interest rates have continued increasing, I think we are far closer now to the peak in the interest rate cycle. And I think that visibility for the market means that a lot of the pressure on multiples that we suffered last year as the cycle was really getting going and there was uncertainty over how far it might go, some of that pressure has now been released. So in quite a few cases, the companies that performed the worst last year as their multiples were compressed have actually rebounded the strongest this year as that pressure has released. On top of that, we have a few companies that have performed extremely well in terms of fundamentals, which has also boosted performance. I think the shares are up around 5% this year, something like that. But they uh, continue to trade at a significant discount. I think we're over 10%. Has that been a bit of a disappointment to you? Yes, it has. And clearly a frustration of ours. The board has tried to address this by conducting share buybacks. And I think the board has now done around 6% of the trust in terms of buybacks. And that continues. And I know that they have the intention of continuing that for as long as there is a substantial discount. But ultimately, it has proven a frustration for all of us. And what we suspect is that a lot of it is market sentiment. If you look at the broader investment trust space, almost all trusts are at a discount. And actually, within our grouping, we are at the smallest discount. So ultimately, all of our peers are at a discount. But still, we hope that as market sentiment improves and as our performance continues to improve, we hope that that discount will continue to narrow. In your annual report earlier this year, you talked about the fact that it appeared people's concerns about inflation interest rates would ease this year, which is, I think, as you just said, is what's happened. Uh, But you said there's also a, a different factor, which is the fear of recession. Of course, uh, I understand your comments on that. Clearly, the US economy has been more resilient than uh, many thought. The UK also has not yet, uh, as far as we can tell, we're not quite sure where it is in terms of recession. Uh, the Bank of England has changed its forecast. What is your take on that particular fear as well? Is that something which is also still depressing sentiment to some extent? Yes, I think so. And it really comes and goes in waves. So while we have commented that the specifics around the interest rate cycle, I think, are becoming resolved, The fears of recession are closely tied to that because clearly people are worried that if interest rates go too high, it will automatically lead to a recession. And certainly towards the end of last year, I'd say that that was the primary reason why markets were weaker. And at certain points during this year, particularly around that mini banking crisis in March, I think people were worried that it would lead to or exacerbate a potential recession. Fortunately, in the near term, it hasn't. And I think, therefore, those periods of weakness in the market were due primarily to fears around recession. Now, as we stand today, with the US labour market continuing to be robust in the face of these higher rates, I think that people are coming to the conclusion at this moment in time that a recession in the US is becoming less and less likely. Therefore, the markets have been relatively robust. 
In Europe, I think it is still a question mark. I mean, Germany is still the weakest economy in Europe, and that is quite likely to be in recession. Other countries may well follow. But at the moment, the US at least, which was people's main concern, is remaining strong. On this point of valuations then, I suppose one of the critical questions is, okay, if people can now see the end of the interest rate hiking cycle, they don't yet know what's going to happen after that. Yeah, our interest rate is going to come back down again, as some fear a recession will be a factor in that, obviously, if we get one. Or are they going to stabilize around these levels? And if they do stabilize around these levels, and we see bond yields around 4 or 5%, that sort of thing, for some time, is that going to, if you like, put a cap on the extent to which valuations of the kind of companies you own in particular can uh, recover? It may well put a cap on the multiples assigned to our companies, but ultimately we own companies that are fast growing in terms of free cash flow growth. And so over time, even if those multiples are capped at a certain level, and I don't know that they will be, but let's hypothetically say that they are, the underlying free cash flow of those companies still growing for the most part for our companies at double digit rate will mean that the performance of the share prices and therefore the fund should hopefully continue at a double-digit rate if all goes well. I think one of the points you made on your last uh, report was that the free cash flow yield on the portfolio has risen from last year when it got to a very uh, low point, but it's actually now back to around the level it was when you actually launched the trust back in October 2018. How do you reflect on that? Does that suggest that this is a kind of steady state that we would expect to see with the growth coming through uh, to provide the returns? Would that be a reasonable way of looking at it? Yes, I think it's quite encouraging. I mean, ultimately, when we launched in 2018, after that, we had around four years of very good results with the share prices all doing well. So that's the first reason for optimism. Second, while it's hard to say that the overall market is cheap, certainly we are seeing very exciting pockets of attractive valuations with reasonably fast-growing companies and certainly very high-quality companies. So even in the last couple of months, we've been adding companies to the portfolio because we see those valuations as attractive still. So the overall market, it's it's very hard to draw conclusions when looking at average multiples, average valuations for a market, because our job as stock pickers clearly is to find those jewels within the market that are looking attractive for still very high quality, high growth companies. And I think we are still able to do that and, and us continuing to find those. So for us, it's still quite an exciting time where we feel the market is in a place where we're still finding those great opportunities. Well, let's talk about those in just a moment. One sort of final broader question, I guess. How important is it in terms of the results that you produce, the behaviour of the dollar and sterling and other currencies? If one look across the whole portfolio, we've seen the dollar weaken quite significantly since last year. That's hurt some companies which rely on dividends from their component companies in sterling terms. But uh, what's the impact on you and which trend would you prefer to see continue from here? I'd say it's very limited. I mean, clearly, we're long-term investors and currencies move through cycles. We don't base any of our decisions on those, either where currencies are today or where we think they might go in the future. So ultimately, the vast majority of the impact is a translational effect. And we tend to look through that in terms of the adjustments in our own models. So it really impacts us very little. So you have around 30 stocks in the portfolio. It's quite a concentrated portfolio. That's part of your offering, if you like, the thing you're expressing your confidence by. And if we look back over the last 18 months, the overall operating metrics of the companies you invest in, I think, are pretty much as robust as they were. So it is mainly the valuations that have changed. You've had a slightly more turnover than you normally have. Is that because some of the companies that you own have actually proved to have flaws or, per contra, have actually proved more resilient than you expected? 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors and, and specific to every situation. Last year, we had more turnover simply because the market was very volatile. Obviously, prices dropped a lot and we saw excellent opportunities to pick up new companies at attractive valuations. We then had to fund that somehow. So that generated selling, which we may or may not otherwise have done to create the opportunity to buy those companies. But also a couple of the companies we sold last year, things had changed. So Ansys is a very good example. This is a US software company, which makes software helping designers to create prototypes for products and test the physics around certain situations like uh, it's the equivalent of a wind tunnel but using a computer that company we still liked the industry very much and its competitive position it's a clear leader in the market but the management over the past few years had embarked on a series of very expensive acquisitions which meant their returns on invested capital had fallen from around 30 percent when we bought the company five years ago to now less than 10 percent And we'd just grown frustrated with the amount of money that was being spent on expensive acquisitions. So we decided to sell the company. So that's an example of something changing that we didn't like. And I think, therefore, every company has a a different story like that. Wingstop is another one that we sold. Again, things had changed. The CEO, who was largely credited with the resurgence and growth at Wingstop, left for another opportunity that is quite concerning as well as soon after him, a lot of other senior managers left, like the head of the international business, which is mostly where all of their growth is coming from, and their CTO, head of technology, also left. So those are red flags too. So each individual company had specific reasons why we sold it. Have you been able to uh, pick up any of the updraft, I think, put it that way, from uh, all this excitement about AI and so on. Do you have any kind of exposure to that uh, particular thing, which seems to have excited investors and driven some share prices to rather extraordinary levels? But uh, what are your thoughts about that? Is is that actually a, a theme that you might look at ever? Yeah, it has certainly excited a lot of people. We don't have any direct exposure for a couple of reasons. Number one, we don't construct our portfolio by thinking about themes. We are purely bottom-up looking for as we've said many times, high-quality companies that are growing at at reasonable valuations. And you don't really find reasonable valuations in anything with AI related to the title. The second point is clearly we're in smaller mid-cap and a lot of the companies really taking advantage of it at the moment are very large companies, so they're not really in our remit. And thirdly, a lot of the companies taking advantage of this are private as well, and we are invested in listed companies only. So that's a third reason. But ultimately, it's not something that we seek out because we're not theme driven. If we happen to find a great company that did have a degree of AI in its business model, then it would be certainly quite attractive. And to a degree, our most recent acquisition called Oddity does have or does rely somewhat on AI and machine learning. But that really is a byproduct of its business, which is ultimately cosmetics rather than uh, the main reason why we don't it. Well, tell us about Oddity. It's a good name for a company, I have to say. What attracted you to that? Well, funnily enough, the name Oddity comes from the fact that the founders of the company got into cosmetics and the beauty industry by, they claim, being outsiders. And they've been highly successful. They have two of the fastest growing brands in the US uh, in cosmetics and skincare. And um, they wanted to name the company Oddity because they believed themselves to be odd and felt that they were doing things differently and they want to continue doing things differently. But the company itself, it sells both makeup and skincare directly to consumers only online. And 
they have managed to generate a lot of data on their consumers. They have around 40 million customers, but around 1 billion data points on those customers. By asking each of their new customers to take a quiz before buying any of their products and what they have been able to do through that process is garner around 50 data points on every person that they interact with. And using those data points, they can then use the AI and machine learning I mentioned earlier to determine what that customer might like. And in particular, when they're selling them cosmetics, they can, using these quizzes and sometimes selfie photos, zero in on the precise formulation and colour that would suit that person's skin and therefore sell them online a very closely matched product. And in some ways, they claim a product which is more closely matched because their AI machine learning is so accurate than actually if that person were to have gone into a store and been helped by an assistant in store. Now, clearly, a very well-trained beauty technician will know probably more accurately what the person in front of them needs than the machine. But for your average shop assistant in, they operate mostly in the US, so it would be Ulta Beauty or Sephora. Uh, in the UK, a similar environment might be Boots. And so they claim that the machine actually does a better job, even without seeing that person in the flesh. But the next layer on this, of course, is that from all this data, they can now determine what their customers need next. So for example, they are developing acne products and developing hair loss products. And as soon as those are prepared, they know already who to directly market those products to because they can tell from selfies and from the quiz data who might require that. Right. Well, I don't use many beauty products, unfortunately, but I obviously I should be trying them out. Have you got any other companies that you're kind of stalking? You obviously can't name names, but are you kind of excited by some of the valuations you can find out there that would actually justify replacing one or two more names in the trust? Are we going to see more turnover this year, in other words? Yes, I think we will. I mean, as you know, the way that we run the fund is we have what we call our investable universe list of now 85 companies, which we have already done a lot of research on and decided that these are all companies which are high enough quality to be in the portfolio. We just need for the right time to buy them. And so of those 85, we already own 33. So of those remaining 50 odd, there are a decent handful that we are literally hovering over the trigger on. We think they're very exciting and the valuations at the moment are quite attractive. So yes, certainly I think that you can expect by the end of the year, we would have made some more acquisitions. I'm sure uh, listeners won't let me uh, end this call without uh, asking you about Rightmove, everybody's interested in UK house prices and so on. Uh, as an investment, is there anything that uh, you can read across from Rightmove and its performance into uh, what you think might happen to the UK housing market, given all the issues around it? Unfortunately, I think it's the other way around. Rightmove is very loosely related to the housing market in terms of its revenues and profits. And the reason for that is because Rightmove generates its revenue from subscriptions, monthly subscriptions from estate agents. So whatever the house prices are doing and however many housing transactions there are on the market, as long as estate agents continue paying their subscriptions, which are not based on prices or transactions, it's just based on branch numbers, then Rightmove's revenue is relatively stable. It simply increases by the price increases that they put through to agents every year. However, if the UK housing market gets so bad that estate agents go out of business, then that starts to affect Rightmove. And so we are far from that point. In fact, over the last couple of years, as we know, the housing market has been very strong. And so 
estate agents are still in rude health from or off the back of those couple of years of good performance. So while, yes, this year housing markets are clearly weaker driven by the high interest rates, estate agents are still surviving quite well and should do for some time. So it's I would only expect an impact on right move really, maybe not even 12 months from now, but we'd have to get quite a bad housing market situation for that to knock on into right moves revenues and earnings. But in the meantime, actually, Rightmove just reported pretty good results because estate agents are upgrading themselves on Rightmove software packages in an attempt to place themselves better in the market and try and generate more leads and more instructions. So actually, the competition in a tighter market for estate agents is driving them to spend more on Rightmove's tools to help them perform better in the market. So someone at least is doing well out of that particular situation. Uh, Perhaps I could just finish by asking you something about the UK market. There's been a lot of talk, obviously, about the fact that valuations in the UK market are very poor by historical standards and by international comparisons. And there's a lot of talk about what the government or the regulators or companies can do to uh, turn around the uh, decline of the UK as a listed market. Do you have any thoughts on that? Are you finding more opportunities in the UK? That'd be one way of addressing that question. But also, do you think there's anything that the UK government or regulators could do usefully to make the UK market more attractive and uh, therefore drive up valuations, one would hope as well? On the second part of the question, I really wouldn't be the right person to ask on that. In terms of opportunities in the UK market, we are finding some, one in particular we are looking at closely, but really the valuation that is attracting us is not driven by the UK environment because it is an international business. So actually, it is the broader global cycle that has caused the valuation on that particular company to fall rather than anything that's going on in the UK specifically. So while we are seeing opportunities in the UK, I can't say that is directly a consequence of what's going on in the UK specifically. Okay. And so looking ahead now, you're coming up to your fifth anniversary. I guess there's even a a possibility that you might have to have a uh, continuation vote or something. I can't remember what the terms are, which you have to do that. But uh, what would be your general message about the trust and, uh, you know, looking back at how well it's done since it started and what's happened in the last week? What what would be your general message to shareholders at this point? Well, we're very pleased with how the trust has performed fundamentally. I mean, we always set out with the ambition to generate a double-digit return. And approaching our fifth year anniversary, the net asset value has compounded above 10%. So we're very pleased with that. And we're in an environment right now, as we've discussed, where while the overall valuation of the market isn't outstanding, we are finding a lot of very exciting companies at discounted valuations because of what's gone on in the last 12 to 18 months. So we're quite excited about the future and very pleased with how it's gone so far. So ultimately, we think it's gone to plan and we're excited and very optimistic that it's going to continue that way, given the opportunities that we're looking at today. That was Simon Barnard, the manager of the Smithson Investment Trust, the global smaller company's vehicle that has, as I say, coming up to its fifth anniversary. It's been a very busy week for news from the investment trust sector, both corporate developments and also a wide swathe of results, including some quite well-known trusts this week. But my first question to uh, you and Lovett Turner, the head of investment trust research at Numis Securities, was actually about what's been happening with discounts. Could you just sort of sum up for us, so you and how you see what's happened as far as discounts are concerned in the sector? My impression is they've stabilised at this shockingly low level they're at. But uh, do you have a different take on that? Are we going to see some improvement? 
Yeah, you have seen definite stabilisation and a bit of recovery in recent weeks or so from very extreme levels and really levels. If you look at the aggregate universe not seen since the global financial crisis, apart from the very short blip at the start of COVID. And so in aggregate, you've got the sector trading on mid-teen discounts. It come in a, a couple of percent from the wide levels. And really what you've seen this year is particularly alternative income funds like infrastructure, renewable energy, derating significantly on the, the change in interest rate environment. And you've got a lot of those funds trading around expectations for interest rates. And you've also had wide discounts on listed private equity, some of which have come in ever so slightly, but um, still investors pretty wary about the outlook. Um, Many equity funds, particularly growth orientated strategies, still trading on, on reasonably wide discounts as investors are looking for a bit more certainty about the outlook before deploying capital and retail investors probably feeling the pinch with cost of living crisis and the like and savings are being run down or cash levels have been run down and and perhaps saving or investing is less of a priority when you've got uh, the potential of increased mortgage rates on, on the horizon as well. Yes, and the fact that you can now get quite a decent yield by investing in a money market fund or a short dated gilt, 4 or 5%, that provides some competition for investors' capital. That's for sure. So the big question is, we've seen more interest rate increases from the Bank of England this week and the Federal Reserve last week, talking about possibly another increase still to come. It's the question of the outlook for interest rates from here. If we can see the top of the interest rate cycle and possibly some uh, subsequent decline, that would be a trigger perhaps for a further re-rating. Yeah, you make a good point on alternatives and many major investors in our universe have been looking at UK gilts as alternatives to the alternative asset to your infrastructure renewable funds, uh, particularly of late. Yeah, rates, another 25 bips increase this week from the UK up to 5.25 and, and certainly the market expectations is we're getting much closer to peaks. Market's pricing in a peak of around 5.7 in the UK in early 2024. That's down from over 6% with the expectation in June and rates now in the US around 5.5 and expectations of earlier cuts for what it's worth. I'm no economist, but I do think you see a period where you're going to have a meaningful interest rate for quite a period. And what's key now is we've had that shift, which is quite a painful shift in expectations. And the rate of change of that increase was really quite severe. So that leading to a huge amount of uncertainty. And now as you get a bit of stability in rates, I think you can more easily perhaps complete some deals in various asset classes. So you get a bit of pricing information, you get a bit more comfort on your valuations as a result. And just in an environment where you're not seeing a big rate of change in rates, I think that becomes a lot more feasible. You can structure deals with with a degree of certainty and that becomes a more comfortable environment for people to look to the future. You know, that doesn't stop the impact being quite significant in some areas. And really, I think you're seeing a bit of action by boards, directors, investment companies in, in things like repurchasing, buying back shares as a way to get nav accretion and, and, and help support share prices and the volatility of those prices. And really a big one for a potential catalyst for narrowing of discounts is really M&A, corporate transactions. You've seen some come through in specialist properties areas, industrials, REIT, which focused on industrials property was taken out by 
Blackstone not so long ago, and I think a real catalyst would be if you saw more M&A of that sort in areas like the infrastructure sector. The point here really is that the last 18 months have been difficult ones for the investment trust sector. And as a result, out of that has come a lot of issues for boards to address. And there is this issue around, as you say, consolidation. There's a potential M&A. And it's thrown out one or two government's issues as well. So this is a period when boards actually have to earn their keep and make some tough decisions about how to allocate capital as well. So let's just pick on some of these issues then. Let's start off with the bad ones, if we may. I mean, this week we heard more from Home REIT whose shares are suspended because of huge issues with their portfolios. And also, there's an ongoing saga at a relatively new trust called Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact. These kind of episodes are not helpful for uh, the investment trust sector and its reputation. How do you interpret what, uh, for example, Home Reed had to say this week? I sort of echo your views that it's a, a busy time for boards at the moment and that it's really now time to prove the value of that independent board that sits there at an investment company to try and Take action when times are are tough and you've got a huge, very unusually large number of strategic reviews going on and we've seen manager changes and the like. Taking the two examples you've looked at, it is pretty disappointing to see this sort of thing. Um, A bit of late cycle issuance sometimes gets through at lower quality and Home REIT, which was set up to try and own and fund homeless accommodation. It's a real disappointment to see something with that sort of mandate not really deliver. But um, just this morning, it was announced that the new manager who's come in, had been appointed by the board, has sold a few assets for just shy of £5 million at a, a 40% of the purchase price. So it's pretty extreme destruction of value by the company, the manager, since the launch of the trust. It's very difficult to know what the implications are on other assets in the portfolio. The board's facing pretty significant questions about its oversight in general and not following through particularly actively with a bid that was potentially on the table at 40p. So really, a a lot more information needs to come out of the company to understand what sort of value. But it's a big disappointment to see events like that. And similarly with Thomas Lloyd, which was the last IPO before a kind of IPO drought in December 2021. And that's emerging markets infrastructure, which has really been probably a graveyard in the past for a couple of investment trusts. And that's facing big questions over its due diligence process after some meaningful write-downs and not completing deals. And latterly, the manager seems to be requisitioning a continuation vote, which the board is likely to recommend voting against or has recommended voting against because it appears to be so that the management group secure a five-year term. I think it's key to highlight that these are real exceptions to the rule. And I think governance in the sector has improved materially over the years And there are a lot of boards working quite hard to make sure things like this don't happen, giving oversight of the management groups and taking action in the form of strategic reviews, mergers, change of managers when things aren't working out. And that element of natural selection, if funds don't work out, they wind down and return capital or merge with another fund to try and make something with scale and appeal to a wide range of investors is part of the investment trust universe and ultimately healthy. I think you do see a number of funds disappearing over this tougher conditions. And we we saw that post GFC as well. But um, I still think you've got a lot of high quality companies with good assets and management teams in there. The Thomas Lowe one is slightly unusual because you've got the managers trying to uh, drive a discontinuation boat on the board resisting it because you say for the factors, it appears to be that 
if they do discontinue, then that allows the, the managers to retain some more fee income over a long period when they clearly, on the looks of it, they don't deserve it because of the series of problems they've had, particularly in India. In terms of consolidation generally, then, as you say, I think it's going to go on. Uh, and I'm sure you agree with that. You were arguing for it even before the big derating we've had. And we have seen some quite significant changes amongst uh, management houses as well. We've seen Aberdeen, for example, a lot of their trusts are driving change at those trusts, consolidating them, merging them, uh, changing, or perhaps in one case, getting rid of them. And then we've seen other houses like Schroeder's have been picking up mandates uh, in a number of cases. This week, we heard, for example, that uh, AVI, Asset Value Investors, has picked up the mandate for MIGO Opportunities. And Schroeder's is going to be the new home for International Biotechnology Trust. So there are kind of winners and losers on both sides of the fund management side as well. Yeah, I think this change is always happening. Aberdeen sort of, I suppose, got its own structural issues in the the management group. Quite a lot of change going on there and somewhat reflective. You know, they've wound down subscale fund in Aberdeen, Latin America. They put together a couple of Asian funds, which uh, Aberdeen New Dawn and, and Asian Dragon are putting together and a couple of small cap funds as well, which ultimately probably quite a few investors may have been calling for that for a number of decades. So um, it's getting there in the end, I suppose. And Aberdeen diversified, subject to a strategic review at the moment, but the nature of the assets is looking for a merger, but might make that somewhat tricky. I think you mentioned two really interesting ones in, in MIGO and International Biotech, where you're actually potentially seeing a bit of change in management group, but continuity in management teams as they appear to be shifting across with the mandates and and certainly international biotech. That was an unusual situation where SV, the the management group, served notice to the board because it wanted to focus on its private venture funds. And the team that currently manage it, the two managers are heading across to Schroeder's, which intriguingly many decades ago is where SV started from. And they'll sit within the thematic team there. So some some deep resources to call on, but the existing management team going there. And I think that's a good result for shareholders. Importantly, though, the board looked at all options. And this is an example where if shareholders quite like the status quo, but the board see a whole range of options from different management groups, including and excluding the existing team. And also it looked at merger options as well. Due process has been followed and it can mean that maybe the obvious solution of going with the existing management team sometimes doesn't actually happen. But in this case, I think it has and it seems like a good result for shareholders. Similarly, MIGO opportunities, quite a popular one with with followers of the investment trust world in that it invests in a portfolio of investment trusts. Just had results out today actually saying that the top 12 holdings are trading on a 31% average discount, which the manager Nick Greenwoods highlights has previously been a level that has led to or been a precursor to a explosive increase or run up in value were his words around that. So quite an interesting moment. He clearly taking the view that the investment company sector looks cheap and AVI are taking uh, on the management contract from Premier Mighton. This follows Nick Greenwood's retirement at the start of this year. And Charlotte Cuthbertson, who used to be uh, the co-manager on this, is going to be employed by AVI. And they've highlighted that a senior hire will be following her in the near future. So your best guess would be that would be Nick, who's managed the fund since the early 2000s. So that, again, is probably a a result where a bit of continuity, a well-respected management team 
continue to run the fund is probably the the better option rather than the more radical change we've seen in a number of uh, other places with Aberdeen Japan rolling over into Nippon Active Value. You've seen another merger in the property space, CT Property merging with Industrials REIT and Civitas Social Housing being acquired. So different forms of corporate action happening across the sector with a view to sort of either crystallizing to value or putting the fund on a, a, a sort of even footing for the future. Another one we heard from this week also was news that uh, Alex Illingworth, who used to be the co-manager on a Midwind Trust, alongside Simon Edelson, who uh, recently announced his retirement. Interesting move this one. He's moving to Harwood Capital, which is run by Christopher Mills, and he's going to be starting some new global equity funds for them. While Midwine itself, a couple of weeks ago, said it was going to be moving its mandate from Artemis to Lazard's. So there is an awful lot of change going on. In some cases, this seems to be sort of driven by the managers themselves or the management teams finding different homes. In other cases, it's been driven by a kind of normal process of retirement and so on. But it's all pretty healthy at the end of the day. But the key to it, I guess, is that shareholders are consulted. That normally means the larger institutional shareholders, not the retail investors. But these things normally work quite smoothly, don't they? They're often, they do take quite a long time to bring off. That's one of the defects of the kind of legal uh, corporate constraints that investment trusts uh, operate. One of their strengths most of the time, but it does uh, slow things down in these cases. Yeah, Midwine's a really interesting example, actually, where the original solution of Simon Edelson being retired and Alex leaving the business is, is Artemis, were the manager and brought in a new manager from JP Morgan to run the trust and their global mandates. Clearly, the board, in this case, it appeared that they weren't hugely consulted in that matter and that triggered a, a wider review and them choosing to move it to a completely different management group, Lazard with a global quality growth type approach. So yeah, management groups in making changes do need to be aware that that can trigger an independent board to assess all of their options, which sometimes does make somewhat obvious in-house mergers between two funds of the same group tricky to implement because it might be a risk for that management group to then open up a whole wide range of options, which the board should be looking at really. Yes, yeah, so if that wasn't enough, then the boards also have these important issues to oversee effectively the way that the trusts are responsible for allocate capital. I mean, that's a decision that can be taken by the board in consultation with the managers, but it's particularly acute in the case of some of these alternative asset trusts, where given the big discounts they're trading on, they have to make a decision whether to try and address the discount first or whether to address their balance sheets if they have issues around the cost and maturity of their debt or carry on investing in new projects. These are tough decisions as well. This is becoming more common. We're actually hearing more about trusts changing their capital allocation strategy. We heard this week, for example, from Pantheon, the uh, private equity trust, which says it's going to prioritize share buybacks in this particular case and commit more money to it. What's your assessment of that one? And, And generally, whether we're going to see a lot more boards having to come out with decisions about this kind of choices they have to make about where to put their capital? I think it's a really interesting development and it does come from a lot of funds shifting from trading on premiums and issuing new shares to discounts and the the impact that's had on shareholder returns is very meaningful. It's really important that boards are focused on the share price and the impact that's had rather than just commenting on the NAV performance and what's gone on there. You have seen a sea change in a number of the alternatives, particularly listed private equity funds, like you mentioned, Pantheon International, and a number of the renewable and energy and infrastructure funds highlighting buyback policies. 
I think share buybacks can be a really useful tool. You know, it's not a solution to a discount on its own. You do need to stimulate demand as well, but it's a, a way of tackling a bit of excess supply, a bit of excess selling. The company can absorb that. And I think that's got a number of benefits in terms of limiting discount volatility when you've got sellers in a reasonably liquid market. It also is immediately navacretive if you're trading on a a discount, and that's where the assessment versus new opportunities very much comes in. Investing in your own shares might well be the best, particularly if you're seeing 30 40% discounts. And um, it's a strong signal about confidence in the, the valuation of the portfolio. And I have seen some evidence of things like narrowing spreads for funds that are consistently buying back. So Pantheon's move was pretty significant. Pantheon International of announcing a 200 million buyback to the end of the financial year, May 2024, which is about 15% of share capital, 8 or so percent of, of NAV at the current 40 plus discount. And it's going to allocate to that to buybacks, buying back more when the discount is wider. And significantly on an ongoing basis after that financial year, looking to continue to buy back when the discount is wide, uh, a proportion of its realisation proceeds from the portfolio. So private equity, not really income generating, but you do get a pretty consistent flow of realisations from a diversified portfolio. So I think that's a good and quite bold step taken by the board. It also highlights increased marketing, to seek to try and tackle the demand side of things, which I, I think is important. But yeah, I think that's a positive development and, and hopefully acts as one of the, the catalysts that might start to see a re-rating in these asset classes. And really, it's pretty important for these companies and boards, if they want to exist on an ongoing basis as well, really to keep the wolf from the door of a fund trading on a 40-odd discount should be pretty attractive to secondary private equity buyers or infrastructure funds to a right wide range of, of long-term investors. So, um, yes, focusing on the share price and seeking to narrow the discount is pretty important from that point of view. And also just to send that message to shareholders that the, the board is on your side. And I think that's pretty meaningful over a, a medium-term view if, if investors uh, think that's the case rather than being forgotten in, in the difficult times. Yes, and I noticed the shares of Pantheon are up around 3% this week and obviously reacted positively to that news. They started doing buybacks last year, but it was pretty small scale. So they seem to be taking the view that if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing to excess, you know, the old saying. But not every uh, private equity trust and not every alternative asset trust will have the flexibility to commit so much of their capital to uh, share buybacks because a lot of them do also have balance sheet issues they have to address. I noticed, for example, that the renewable infrastructure group said it was going to prioritize repaying its debt or reducing its borrowings and continuing the funding of its existing projects and therefore wouldn't be doing a huge amount on the share buyback front. So every trust has different issues, don't they? And any alternative asset trust that's got a balance sheet, which perhaps looks a little extended now, has got debt, has to be refinanced at higher costs and so on. They're going to have to review that quite carefully as well. And they won't have that share buyback uh, freedom to the same extent. That's very true. And, and strength of the balance sheet really is sacrosanct in these sort of conditions. Pantheon, I'd highlight, it's got about 60 million of net cash, a further 500 million unused credit facility versus that commitment to buy back around 200 million in this financial year. So it, it's got some firepower with which to do that. You sometimes wouldn't necessarily want debt to increase to fund buybacks, 
but that's part of the ongoing plan will be for it to come more from realization proceeds so a bit more comfortable with that but certainly if you've got higher debt levels your hands are somewhat tied we have seen that in yeah the likes of chrysalis a growth capital fund specifically saying that it needs to focus more on having cash available for supporting its portfolio you know saying that probably 12 18 months ago which was definitely the right approach rather than answering some investors calls to maybe do things like buybacks and yeah, particularly in property and some of those renewable energy and infrastructure where some have commitments to fund as well. You need to be very careful of the balance sheet and managing that properly. So it will be limited in, in some places, but I think that's definitely the right thing to do because balance sheet issues in, say, the global financial crisis, you, you saw a number of private equity property funds have, have pretty value destructive rights issues or for selling of assets to try and manage balance sheets. But in general, the level of debt in most funds at the fund level is, is much lower than it has been historically. But you certainly need to also be trying to reduce that debt, particularly if it's in some cases now where we're seeing refinancing where the, the yields are quite well above the yield of the underlying assets as that more expensive debt comes through. So there you've got to be comfortable that you can, well, one, pay down your debt and hopefully you've got an income stream that can also increase in a inflationary environment or, or just the current environment rather than more fixed cash flows, which would leave you more exposed to that squeeze. And if you just look briefly across the alternative asset space, we've seen a bit of a revival in some of the property trusts. They've poked up a little bit in terms of derating. Infrastructure still remains very unloved at the moment. There are arguments for looking at these sectors now because even in comparison with equivalent uh, bond yields and so on, the kind of spreads between the yields you're getting on some of these alternative trusts and, for example, a gilt or an index-linked gilt are coming back to levels which are comparable with what they were uh, back around the time of the global financial crisis uh, or just before. Do you think there is value there? Do you think people are going to start to see some value in those kind of situations? Yeah, I think they will, certainly where you've got confidence of a, a high-quality portfolio that some of these funds have, have put together. I think the type of long cash flows should be pretty attractive to a wide range of investors. And so M&A might be on the cards. And we, we have seen part of the selling has been exactly that trade of people looking at UK gilt and just saying, I might as well buy that rather than the current yield on, on some of these infrastructure funds. But you do also need to match that with the nature of that income stream. Often in the, the infrastructure space has a degree of inflation linkage. And I think, is it Trig, the Renewables Infrastructure Group themselves were comparing the implied real return from a 20-year UK government bond around 1.1% real return compared to their assessment of Trig at 52 So they're seeing that sort of inflation-linked return profile is something you do need to consider. But the degree of inflation linkage varies by funds. The nature of that is a little bit different depending on the portfolios. So it takes a bit of assessment and understanding for investors to understand and see that and get comfortable again that that might be a attractive long-term cash flow. So we've talked a lot about alternative assets, but in terms of equity trust generally, tell us your thoughts about that and whether there are any particular areas which actually look more attractive than others on a rating basis combined with the obviously the valuations and so on. Yeah, I think the equity sector is also broadly very diverse across geography and sectors. And you've seen pretty significant deratings in those sectors as well. 
particularly sort of growth orientated mandates. You know, once the darling Scottish mortgage is currently trading on a, a 19 odd percent discount to net asset value, where else you've got UK small cap funds on double digit discounts, certainly. So there are definitely opportunities uh, around and looking for the higher quality managers that you think can deliver in a range of conditions. That was uh, Ewan Lovettena, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Numis Securities. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.